Hello and welcome to the first official post-Browns playoff victory edition of the Rebuild Podcast. I'm Jordan Zerm, and for the first time since 1994, the Cleveland Browns have won an NFL playoff game. Still feels pretty surreal to say, even five days later, but we can say it. The Browns have won an NFL playoff game over their bitter, bitter rivals. The Pittsburgh Steelers. So savor that. You hold on to it. It's not something we get to say often. Obviously, the last time the Browns were in the playoffs, they lost to those Bears Steelers in a game that had some pretty eerily similar vibes. Now, I don't. Browns were never up twenty-eight to nothing in that game, but we all remember two thousand and two and and blowing a three-score lead. I think it was in the fourth quarter against the Pittsburgh Steelers in Heinz Field. Just. Little bit of eerie vibes, big lead, and then the Browns all the way blew it in 2002, but they held on this time. They held on and win. Really fun episode of the podcast today. Uh, I'm going to be joined by The Athletics' Nate Tice. He is one half of The Athletic Football Show, him and Robert Mays, which I cannot recommend enough. It's very quickly become my favorite NFL podcast, obviously outside of this one, but it's weird to listen to yourself talk, so I'm just talking about stuff I'm listening to. Uh, the... Athletics NFL uh, football podcast is phenomenal, and Nate Tice, who's the son of former NFL coach Mike Tice, is going to join me in a little bit to talk about the Browns, their playoff win, a little bit of that. We're going to cover most of that here, but also going to talk a little bit about the Chiefs and if there's any way in hell the Browns can slow that offense down, and if there's any, literally any chance that they can win another playoff game against the defending world champion Kansas City Chiefs. So looking forward to having Nate Tice on in a little bit to look ahead to the Browns' next matchup and wax poetic about the Browns' offensive line. Both Nate and Robert are uh, big fans of watching the Browns' offensive line work. They talk about it a lot on their podcast. We will get into a little bit of that as well. But before we get to Nate Tice, let's take a look at the three biggest things from the game versus the Pittsburgh Steelers. All right, number one that I wanted to hit, Baker Mayfield's growth. Baker Mayfield has been improving on a week-to-week basis really since after the bye. It's been well-discussed here. It's been well-documented. He has continued to play at a high level, especially once the weather turned uh, and they went to Jacksonville, just playing really, really good football. And we know that from just his raw numbers. We know that from his efficiency and advanced stats like completion percentage over expectations and the eye test and just watching him. But it's really cool when you can see growth on a play that stymied him earlier in the season. And when you can compare it against each other, you can really, really see right in front of you like, okay, this happened early on. It was not good. He learned from it. Here's a similar situation. He does something different. It's a positive play. So I tweeted this play on my Twitter account, at Cleve Zerm. But the Steelers use Minka Fitzpatrick in a variety of ways. They move him all over the field, and a lot of times what they do with him is what I think some people call a robber and other people call like buzz coverage, is basically Minka, they'll rotate him down from his safety position. So you imagine him playing just normal depth for a safety um, at the snap, before, or pre-snap, I should say. So initially you think, okay, he's going to be playing coverage or he's 
you know, got one half of the field or the middle half of the field, whatever it is, whatever coverage the Steelers are playing, but he's going to be back there. Uh, but a lot of times, right before the opposing team snaps the ball, Minka Fitzpatrick comes down and tries to bait the quarterback into throwing the ball to him in the throwing window that he is currently occupying. So for a quarterback that has a read that he sees pre-snap based on a covered look that the Steelers are giving him, all of a sudden Minka Fitzpatrick is not in the position he was before the ball was snapped, and it causes a lot of confusion for quarterbacks. Um, Minka is very good at this role. He's very good as sort of this hybrid defender who can come down and play the run or blow up a wide receiver screen or, uh, you know, pick a quarterback off. And that's exactly what happened to Baker Mayfield in week six when the Browns got absolutely destroyed by the Steelers and when he had a pick six on Baker Mayfield that pretty much ended the game in the first quarter, really bef- before it even started. And it was an example of that. And we've talked about that play a lot on this podcast because we were really down on Baker after that game because Mika Fitzpatrick rotated down, playing the robber, playing the buzz coverage. Baker did either saw it and said, I'm going to throw the ball anyway, or straight up didn't see it and just had decided he was going to the read on the left side of the field, threw the ball right to Minka Fitzpatrick, who all of a sudden was in that throwing window. The Steelers tried the exact same thing very early in the game. It was already 7-0. The Browns hadn't even had the ball yet, as you remember. Gloriously, they recovered a botched snap over Ben Roethlisberger's head in the end zone for a touchdown on the very first play of the game. They're up 7-0. They get the ball back uh, on an interception. And it's third down, third and four, just across midfield. And... Baker Mayfield wants to hit Jarvis Landry, who's running a little in-breaking route uh, out of the slot to his left. And Minka Fitzpatrick plays a very similar coverage. Now, this time Minka started at the line of scrimmage. So he was just behind the defensive line, and he was faking like he was going to blitz. Uh, on the other play that we that I previously mentioned, Minka started back at his safety depth, but He's going to end up in the same place, and it's a similar concept. It just has Minka starting from a different position. So this time, Minka is faking like he's going to blitz, and when Baker snaps the ball, he drops back into coverage. And he drops right back into that similar throwing lane that Baker Mayfield had when he tried to force the ball in in Week 6 and threw that pick 6. This time, Baker, you can see Baker almost kind of take a beat for a minute as he sees where Minka is. And the Browns, I believe it was, had Austin Hooper running a very similar route to the outside of Jarvis. And Minka kind of had to toe the line between those two receivers for where he wanted to sort of settle and try to bait Baker into throwing the ball. And Baker, you can see him take a little bit of a pause just to make sure he knows exactly where Minka is. And he throws just a really, puts a lot of mustard on it, throws this ball just over Minka's outstretched hand into the the hands of Jarvis Landry, and because Minka Fitzpatrick had started at the line of scrimmage and then sort of backed up a little bit to kind of the shallow part of the field, there was nobody behind Jarvis. Um, re- well, I shouldn't say nobody there. Obviously, he made a couple of defenders miss, but, you know, Minka could have been back there a little bit more and could have tried and save uh, a touchdown and been on the back end, but because he came up and because he tried to play the robber, there was um, less defenders on the back end of the field to stop a touchdown, and Jarvis makes a couple moves and he's gone on just a really kind of simple slant in-breaking route um, that Baker fit over the head of Minka, and 
it's just um it's a it's a growth moment it's not this huge thing it's not like oh okay this this is this thing now means baker mayfield is a, is a better quarterback but you can just see him take a second to look at where Minka was he notices Minka. where in week six he just for whatever reason didn't even see him and threw the ball right to him and um case keenum had a quote in a column from peter king after the game in which he said that was really big for baker it was almost kind of like you know looking your demon right in the face on on your first series on offense in that game similar situation that really ended the game in week six and things kind of spiraled from there and there was you know I think that's as down on Baker as we've been in a long time after that week six loss against the Steelers and this time there's a different outcome and he threw a bullet to Jarvis Landry and they scored and they're up 14 nothing um on a third and four I think it was a 40 yard gain by Jarvis Jarvis did a ton of the work obviously after the catch but you know Baker made made a good decision made a good throw um and he beat Mink on that one and that sort of feels like it sums up that entire game. Like the Browns didn't make the mistakes they made in week six, and they just took it to the Steelers, and it was just awesome to see. So that is number one. Number two, the Browns turning Big Ben over four times, despite literally having cornerbacks that they yanked like out of a bus stop. Once again, because of COVID, there was no Denzel Ward. There was no Kevin Johnson. Now, they did have Terrence Mitchell, but that's not um, a guy you want starting at outside corner on every snap. Um, you prefer to have him kind of be your nickel cornerback and not have to kind of carry that load. And then you get outside of Terrence Mitchell, and you've got, you've got guys like MJ Stewart. And you've got a guy like Robert Johnson who was on the practice squad and gets called up into spot duty. Who got absolutely torched by the Steelers in Week 17 by Deontay Johnson specifically, but um, and then he had to take on Chase Claypool and look. Obviously, Ben Roethlisberger threw for 500 plus yards. He threw like 68 times, like a record for an NFL playoff game, because the Browns were up so big. So a lot of those stats are kind of meaningless now. You know, Chase Claypool and, and Juju really got going later in the game. And, you know, put up pretty good statistics because, you know, the Steelers had to throw and abandon the run completely uh, for most of that game. But it's incredible to me that with how just wrecked that secondary is. I mean, the secondary was struggling to begin with when you're trotting out Anderson Dejo every week. Carl Joseph, who's great against the run and great, a great, like, box safety, but not a guy that's in coverage and playing in the secondary and, um, you know, putting more of a burden on Terrence Mitchell and, and those guys, like, it's just incredible that they were able to force Ben into four interceptions. Um, obviously, Sione Takitaki had one, really the game-clinching interception uh, that Ben kind of threw right to him. He was in uh, the throwing window, much like Minko was, and Ben just didn't see him, was trying to force it in, and um, Sione picked it off. But Sheldrick Redwine had a, had a great interception off an overthrow from Ben that got tipped up into the air. He came down with it. Um, obviously, another one of their picks was not <laughs> was not a secondary member. It was Porter Gustin on another tip, tip ball, but but two of them were Sheldrick Redwine and, and MJ Stewart. And um, it's just wild to think about the Browns were able to force the Steelers into that many turnovers when they just were decimated by by COVID stuff, by injuries, by all of that. And it is how the Browns' defense has had to play for a lot of this season, even when Ward and, and Kevin Johnson were there. They've had to make 
big plays like that when it's mattered because they are not a defense that is going to, especially through the air, is is going to be able to stop people. Um, but they have a phenomenal front four. Unfortunately, Olivier Verdon is out for the season, but Miles is still doing his thing, and, and Adrian Claiborne can flash occasionally, and Larry Ogunjobi, you know, had a, a really nice play against the Steelers where he, he blew up a run by pushing his offensive lineman into the backfield immediately on a third and one, shutting that down, and um, so they just have to rely on sort of these big plays and, and getting these turnovers to win games. And, you know, you saw what it did. It gave the Browns a 28 to nothing cushion that the, the team, a 35 to seven cushion that then they were able to sort of, you know, just hold on for dear life after that. But without that sort of cushion, um, you know, you don't really trust that defense and it's not a sustainable way to play defense, uh, but they don't have the pieces to really play any other way. Um, and it, it should be exciting next year when they get Grant Delpit back, when Greedy Williams is back, when they pick some people in the draft that can be contributors immediately to this defense. Um, because then you'll have a more sort of well-rounded team that isn't just relying on a Miles Garrett strip sack or a tip ball or an interception um, to change the game. But they, they made the plays that they needed to uh, defensively, especially in that first quarter. They were given a gift, and they capitalized on it, and then they just they just held on for dear life, and, and Taki Taki made a game-clinching interception when he had to. So they did it. Uh, it was a big deal, and it, it's just a credit to to them to be playing that shorthanded and still be able to turn the Steelers over four times five if you count um, the botch snap. Uh, it's just really unbelievable. So that is number two. And number three, the biggest thing, really to me, doesn't have anything to do with specific players or a specific play. It's just the in- unbelievableness, the incredibleness of of that game. I kid you not, I think I had barely sat down on my couch when the ball got snapped over Ben Roethlisberger's head. And it was like I was watching, uh, I was having a dream of myself, like an out-of-body experience, watching myself watch that happen. And taking a second to fully understand what had just happened, that the Browns had recovered the opening snap in the end zone. With Ben Roethlisberger and James Conner, like, running too far past the ball to pick it up, they're right there. And yet they both sort of just, like, fell behind it and missed. And then Miles Garrett looks like he has it, and it squirts out, and you're like, oh my god. And then they still recover it. I think... It's not like one of those things where you're like, okay, I knew at this moment it was the Browns' day because there's no precedent for that. <laughs> there hasn't been any games where there's been a break that's gone the Browns' way or, and, and it has ever made you feel like, okay, they're going to win this game because that happens. It's just not a feeling we're used to or have had in the past. Um, but it was a thing that doesn't ever, ever happen to the Browns' opponent. That is a play that 100% of the time would happen to the Browns. I'm sure it probably has happened to the Browns. I don't know if it's been like the first snap of the game, but there are absolutely, I, you can go through and there's probably some big third and five that the Browns have to convert and boom, like snap over the head or a false start or a whatever. Like that's just not a play that happens to someone the Browns are playing, much less they recover the ball in the end zone. They didn't have to do any work. They just had to run and chase a football and just dive on it. And they're up 7 nothing, And 14 seconds have gone by. Unbelievable. There's that. And then I just don't think you can talk about enough. Denzel Ward out. 
Kevin Johnson out. Kevin Stefanski is not there. Uh, Bill Callahan is not there. Um, they're playing with a backup offensive lineman who was practicing in a parking lot. In an actual parking lot, his girlfriend was reading calls to him off a play sheet, and he was mimicking the blocks and steps he was going to take in a parking lot because the Browns facility was closed, and he had just gotten called to the, up to the active roster. Then he gets hurt, so a guy named Blake Hance comes in, who his story is pretty unbelievable. He, like, got called, like, Andrew Berry was freaking out about all the COVID stuff that was going on and just wanted an insurance offensive lineman, had his eye on this dude, Blake Hance, who was on the Jets practice squad, had to call the Jets GM, who he knows, and was like, hey, can um, I, I want to sign this guy off your practice squad. I want to make sure, like, I can have him. Is that something we can work out? And because of his relationship with the Jets GM, the Jets GM was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, let me make this happen right now. So Blake Hance signs this deal, this this contract with the Browns, and drives to them. Um, and in just some incredible, like, foresight, um, Andrew Barry just, like, had an inkling that something like this was going to happen and needed some insurance. It was for COVID reasons, but with Petonio going out and then him being replaced by Michael Dunn, the parking lot practice guy, who then gets hurt, and you've got Blake Hance coming in, who has absolutely no business being on the field in an NFL playoff game, blocking Cam Hayward, of all people, and yet the Browns didn't give up a single pressure. Between Michael Dunn and Blake Hance, the Browns did not give up a single pressure in this game. And then Jack Conklin goes out. So you've got Kendall Lamb trying to block TJ Watt. I just don't think that got talked about enough. I mean, I think it, it obviously was a subject of um, people's conversation around this game, but you had a backup, backup offensive lineman trying to block Cam Hayward, and you had Kendall Lamb, who in that game against the Jets got just destroyed um, trying to block TJ Watt, and they didn't give up a single pressure. It doesn't, stuff like that does not happen to the Browns. Has never happened to the Browns in my lifetime. So there was that. And then, you know, you have Alex Van Pelt, who's, you know, by all accounts, really, really smart dude offensively. Been great for Baker Mayfield. But, like, here you go, man. You're calling the plays for an entire game uh, in the playoffs, on the road against the Pittsburgh Steelers. You're going to have absolutely no help from your coach who can't even be in contact with you in any way, shape, or form during the game. So go ahead. Good luck. Props to you. And made some unbelievable calls down the line. That screen to Nick Chubb for a touchdown as the Browns like couldn't get anything going. Huge. Huge. Huge call. Just made some really, really nice play calls down the stretch and was just an extension of Kevin Stefanski. But like for him to be taking over as the play caller and like prefer taking over as the head coach, like those are games that you just lose because of all the things that have happened to your team. And somehow, not only did the Browns not lose that game, but they dominated. And I say dominated because, like, you got to just throw out that entire second half. You throw it out the window. Like, you're playing coverages as the Browns with backup people, and you're just trying to keep the ball in front of you because you don't really have the ability with the corners that you have to play to, you know, send that much pressure and 
do all that. So you're just like, I don't think you can take a ton away from what the Browns did defensively in that second half as any sort of, um, as any sort of prediction of, of what's going to happen to them against the Chiefs. Now the Chiefs have a, um, the, the Chiefs offense compared to the Steelers offense is like yin and yang. Um, and there will be no shame in the Browns giving up like 40 points to the Kansas City Chiefs this weekend. But, um, it just, those are just games that you lose because of the COVID situation, because of injuries, because of all of that. Like, you just don't win those games. Especially not in the playoffs, and especially not against a team like the Pittsburgh Steelers, who have just haunted the Browns for decades. And it is just unbelievable, as we wrap up the number three thing, and we'll get to Nate Tice here in a moment, but it is just unbelievable that that game unfolded the way it did, that the Browns put up 40-plus points in Pittsburgh, that Baker Mayfield came out of there with a 90-plus pro football-focused grade, and that the Browns are playing in the divisional weekend, and if they beat, if by some miracle they beat the Kansas City Chiefs, world champions, best quarterback in the NFL, maybe the best quarterback to ever play the game, best tight end in the game, one of the best wide receivers in the game, if they beat the Kansas City Chiefs, they will be playing in the AFC Championship. <laughs> and it is just, that to me is still so surreal. It's surreal to see their name against the Chiefs as a matchup this weekend, and it will be even more surreal if they somehow win this game. For And as for as little expectations as I had in that Steelers game, and they blew it out of the water, it's similar with the Chiefs. I think the Browns are an incredible offensive team right now, and they're going to have to rely on their offense to keep pace with the Chiefs, which I don't know if the, if it's possible or not, because you punt one or two times and you can feel like, like damn, like that's it, we lost. Feel like you have to score every time, but um, I think they can be right there with them, and that's a pretty unbelievable thing to say. So the Browns are one and zero in the playoffs, two thousand and twenty playoffs, two thousand twenty one playoffs, whatever you want to call it. And they have the Kansas City Chiefs up next, and for that we turn to the Athletics, Nate Tice. Before we get into the interview, I want to take a quick second to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community Discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is, you can get all of this for only 15 bucks a month. It's the same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports experience. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com slash join. You can check out the description box for this episode to find out more. So that's bwhustle.com slash join. Now, let's get back to football. All 
All right. Well, I am very happy to welcome in Nate Tice from The Athletic and The Athletic Football Show uh, to come in and talk a little bit about uh, about the Browns in general and then, you know, do a little preview of the uh, the Browns Chiefs divisional matchup this weekend. Still a little bit surreal for me to say the Browns in a divisional playoff matchup, uh, much less against the defending world champs. But Nate, man, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. I know it's so funny even before the season. I mean, when they moved to seven teams for the playoffs, it's like, oh, an eight and eight team's going to get in, a seven and nine team's going to get in. And then the Browns, you know, had to wait until week 17. Same with the Colts and all these other like good 10 win teams, 11 win teams. And I can only imagine the Browns fans as like even before that, like, Hey, what if we told you, you guys are going to win over 10 games and you might not like, and all Browns fans would be like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You might not make the playoffs, though. But not only did they make the playoffs, they won a game, like, against the division rival who has, you know, been their big brother for years and years. I, I'm I'm fired up for Browns fans. <laughs> it's uh, It's been pretty surreal. I mean, I think, you know, that Jets game um, when the Browns were sort of just decimated by COVID stuff and obviously kind of laid an egg that day, and then it felt like the world was falling and there was a very real possibility that, yeah, they were going to win 10 games and, and miss the playoffs, super reminiscent of 2007. So I think Browns fans were sort of um, bracing for the worst there, but it, it's completely turned around. And um, yeah, I, that game against the Steelers is still just a very, it just sort of still feels like a dream. I know you, you know, listening to, to you and Robert kind of talk about it on your show this week. And I, I think a lot of, especially in the second half, it's really hard to sort of take away any kind of big, big things from that game because, you know, the Browns got out to such a huge lead early. Um, and then they sort of just held on for dear life, especially on the defensive end, kind of the rest of that game. Um, but I think one thing that was really, really impressive and has been the entire season is just sort of the play of the offensive line. And, and especially in that Steelers game where they're trotting out, you know, Michael Dunn, who's in there originally to, to play for Joe Batonia, who was out with COVID and then he gets hurt. So they're bringing in Blake Hans, who literally like drove to the Browns from New Jersey because he was originally on the Jets practice squad. It just like just craziness and, and, and they didn't give up a single pressure, but um, I wanted to start with you, Nate, on kind of just overall your thoughts on, on this Browns offensive line and really like just what's been the most impressive thing to you throughout the season about about how this line has played and how they've really become, you know, one of the most dominant lines this season kind of in, in all the NFL. Yeah. And offensive line play is, well, football more than any other sport is so susceptible to good coaching and it's, it's, you know, players and talent matter more than anything. You don't want any coach fully, <laughs> but you know, you still need good coaches to kind of get those guys to really unlock some players. Um, some players are just scheme and coach proof and it doesn't matter. They're just good. Like, you know, <laughs> and, but some players might need a nudge. And so you got to give credit to Bill Callahan. And what I love so much about the Browns line, not only is their physical, and, you know, they're athletic, like very athletic. They're not just a bunch of bruisers. It's also just like they always are doing the right thing in the run game. And they're not just running one run over and over and over. Like, I think that was maybe the, the team, people that don't watch the Browns, that's a stereotype they're going to have because of Kevin Stefanski's background. But the thing is, Stefanski was only with Kubiak for a year. It's not like he is a Shanahan guy. He's a guy that runs everything. And Bill Callahan has run everything under the sun. 
So it's really cool to watch the Browns align just the, in the run game operate. And Austin Hooper should get a shout-out, too, because he's been blocking so well, is they can run any type of run, and it looks good. It's 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 schematically sound. It's Everybody knows where they're supposed to be going. Do they always get it? No. But, I mean, for the most part, they do. And that's hard to do. You only see a few teams that actually do that. The Saints are one of them. You know, it's it's everyone's on the same page, and that usually reflects on good coaching. And that's what the Browns have right now. And, yeah, that stat from last week is astounding. Baker was getting the ball out quick, but the fact that there's no pressures for an entire game, that's just ridiculous, especially against what the Steelers like to do because they bring so much pressure and and run five guys over and over and over to have all five of your linemen playing a whole game, even like we said with the shuffling going on, not give up a pressure in a playoff game against that front. I mean, no matter who it is, that's impressive. (laughs) So... And the Browns, the Browns line has been one of the most fun units to watch this entire year. And it's been a pleasant surprise. It's been really, really cool. Yeah, I, I think the obviously the addition of Bill Callahan was huge. And I think all the praise that was sort of heaped on him before the season, just talking about like what an incredible coach he is, I think all of that has definitely come to fruition. But it also sort of, like you mentioned Austin Hooper um, and how well he's blocked this season. But And then I think about guys like David Njoku, who – Mm-hmm. Early, early in his career was just not a guy that could block and he, you know, would, would lose playing time because of it. Um, and now he's, you know, he had that huge block on, um, it, it might have been, I think it was actually TJ Watt, like at one point in the game, he's blocking him all the way into the sideline. And it's, you look at even somebody like Donovan Peoples Jones, I think I tweeted a clip, um, it was Donovan's first start. And I think it was against the Cowboys was the first game. He would not start, but should, I should say active the first game he was active in. And, um, you know, the Cowboys defense obviously had their struggles this season, but there's a clip of him where he's just running over a wide receiver and kind of like put, putting him to the ground on a run. And you see it just sort of spread to, you know, Jarvis Landry is one thing that dude's always going to block his ass off, but from Austin Hooper to Njoku to Donovan Peoples Jones to Richard Higgins, like to see the other guys, some of the skill, uh, skill position guys block the way they have, uh, just really feels like it's been a trickle down effect from the offensive line out. Yeah, and that's what a good line coach and good coaching and, and really really something with the Browns as a unit, and especially on offense, they just seem so excited for each other always. Like, it, they just got good mojo going on, and I guess always winning helps with that. Don't get me wrong, but it seems genuine. It doesn't seem phony, and it's because I think they got a lot of the guys to buy into what they're doing. Whatever the concept they're running, everyone knows what they're supposed to be doing. And what you're talking about the receivers blocking, usually that's the hardest guys to get on the same page in the run game because they're like, I'm not scoring. Why do I care? <laughs> but you you see those guys, they're they're doing their jobs and they're trying to they're trying to get to their guys. Even if they can't always, it's awesome. Uh, but Ninjoku has really it's cool seeing a guy like that realize where he's at in the league and go, okay, I got to become a football player. I got to stand up. I got the little things and the little things are big things, especially in the run game and blocking that pin. He had a pin pull play and it might be the one you're talking about. Um, but when he, he, he was pinning on the left side, it was on the touchdown and I'm blanking it, but I think it was Kareem Hunt on it. And, but it was a pin pull play and on that play, those only get unlocked usually when the tight end can block an edge player. And we think those guys are the same size, but a lot of tight ends are becoming more athletes than blockers. And so the fact that you're blocking a legit edge guy who is made to battle offensive tackles over and over, that's a win. That's a huge thing. It's actually what the Bucks do so well is they have two tight ends that can do that, and Gronk and Cameron Brayton. 
And the fact that the Browns had that and Hooper and Joku was huge. Um, there's just so many plays you've, I've seen on this year from the Browns offense that just, uh, you know, just random touchdowns, random scores. And you just see everyone kind of knows their assignment and what to do last week or week 17 uh, on the last play of the game on offense, the third one Baker, they had the sweep to Baker to the right and you, everybody on that play. Okay. So you have a right tackle on Conklin, big money signing, Austin mm-hmm. Hooper, big money signing, um, you know, cream hunt who has had his troubles and everything, but you know, he's a star player. I mean, for all intents and purposes, and on that play is all these big money guys are doing the dirty work. Austin Hooper's fighting his ass off. Jay Conklin's pulling out and knocking the guy off. And then Kareem Hunt is full speed, lead blocking, charging at the linebacker. He knew exactly where to go, and he knew he had to bring it on that play. Everyone knew what to do. And it wasn't like he went, ran. And usually when you see a guy hesitate and not run fast, it's either one, they're scared or two, or not scared. I should never say NFL players scared, but timid. Um, or two, they have no idea what the hell they're doing. And Kareem Hunt on that play, he knew exactly who to go do it. And he knew exactly what he had to do. That's the Browns offense. They just are just a cohesive unit. It's pretty, I love, I love watching them at times, especially, especially when they do things like that. Yeah, no, I think that play um, really epitomized sort of just, yeah, like that that transformation and that sort of like everybody just buying into it, um, that third and one that you mentioned where, yeah, they, their big name players are right there and they're all just like just blocking as hard as they possibly can. And we haven't even, you know, mentioned Wyatt Teller who, um, yeah. aside from being just an absolute kind of animal out there and, and pancaking dudes and mauling dudes, there is a clip that I saw, I think it was yesterday. He's, he's mic'd up on the sideline during that playoff game. And they must have, it must have been when they were up big and he's just screaming on the sideline. He's like, Oh, so the Browns are still just the Browns, huh? He's just like at the top of his voice. Like he is horrifying to me. I, if I was on defense and I saw him pulling or coming at me, I would just be like, you know, you know what, man, you go right ahead. Like I don't want any of it. Like he legitimately frightens me from my couch. And there, there are some guys that do that. And it's, it's funny when you see an NFL player do that and just go, yeah, I'm going to run out of bounds. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. He, um, it's been, it's been pretty unbelievable. I, I wanted to quickly ask you, um, you know, the Browns in 2014 had a really, really stout offensive line. They had Joe Thomas, Mitchell Schwartz, Alex Mack was playing center before he broke his leg kind of about halfway into that season, which really kind of like started a downward spiral for that Browns team who was really playing uh, with their heads above water for a, for a lot of that season. But Joe Batonio was a rookie that year. Um, and then they had John Greco on that line as well. That that's really considered like uh, Browns fans and sort of um, offensive line fans, I guess, really like that's one of the best offensive lines I think I've watched. And um, Kyle Shanahan was their offensive coordinator at that time too. So they were really doing a lot of great things in the run game there as well. Would you sort of stack up this Browns line against like, the names that they, you know, Alex Mack and, and Joe Thomas and Mitchell Schwartz on one line sort of all at their, their peak there is pretty unbelievable. Would you, would you stack up this year's line with, with some of those names in terms of just their, their ability, their ability and how they played this season? Oh yeah. I mean, that Browns line is like top five lines I've seen in the last decade. Um, <laughs> For sure. It's so it's hard. It's just so hard with offensive line play because it's five guys and injuries always kind of stack up for that. So you have to take the whole thing to season and you don't know how well the play calling can make them look okay or if the running backs make them right sometimes, you know, because there there's been times where I see people talking about, oh, this line's so good. And it's like, yeah, 
kind of it's because the running backs make them right and they're doing easy runs and all that stuff. Yeah, but it's no, but I mean this Browns line is I mean it's easily um, uh, on the podium for the last couple of years. You know, gold, silver, bronze of some sort. Um, I would say that 2014 line is it was better though. Um, it, I think it was just a totally different team makeup as well. Um, you know, I think, I think what this team can do now, they've been in more of these games. That 2014 team is such a weird ground season. Um, you know, like you said, they start off hot, you know, the quarterback situation they had, a lawyer and all that. Uh, it's, it's just a kind of different vibe, but I do think that, you know, I mean, Joe Thomas is an all time lineman. Max, an all time center right there. You, you're not, not, I, I, if you start with a great left tackle and a great center, uh, that's a pretty damn good start. And then you got an all pro right tackle who became, who, who got better once he got to Kansas City, maybe, um, as he kind of grew. And also when you're a part of a winning team, you also need to get the spotlight. <laughs> um, like when Alex Mack went to the, uh, to the Falcons, everyone's like, oh, you know, this Alex Mack, he's such a good player. He's like, yeah, he's been a freaking good player for years. Now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We talked about that on the podcast, uh, the one that comes out today or Thursday here. Uh, we were talking about, uh, Andrew Whitworth and he was like, Oh, is he a Hall of Famer? Uh, Robert asked me and I said, Yeah, I, of course he is. It's just that the first half of his career, he played in Cincinnati. And even though they're on winning teams, it's Cincinnati. It's like we can name seven, all the players from the 1970s Steelers because when you're on a winning team, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I remember that fullback. I remember that right guard. We know the for all the Seahawks defensive positions because they were on a good team for years and years. I, I don't know how so many people know what a Leo is, but they do because because everyone does <laughs> the Seahawks defense rules. It's just if you're on a winning team and you you're all of a sudden all the ships get raised. You know, the rising tides raises all ships, and it's just funny how that works. Sometimes I do think that 2014 line though it, uh, chalks up to be a little bit better, but this offensive line is pretty t- dang good. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And I think that 2014 line, if I'm not mistaken, was blocking for the, uh, the likes of Terrence West and Isaiah Crowell. So there was, um, yeah. you know, they were doing, they were doing the Lord's work, opening holes for those guys and, and making exactly. them look like competent running backs. Um, wanted to shift quickly to just your thoughts on Baker and, and where he is with, uh, kind of running this Kevin Stefanski's scheme and this offense. I think, you know, you mentioned how quickly Baker was getting the ball out of his hands against the Steelers. And um, I, I really think since the bye and since the Browns sort of got out of that stretch of just horrendous weather games, um, they they went down to Jacksonville. They played probably a closer game than they would have liked. Um, but Baker played really well. And then sort of since then, he's really just, at least in my opinion, and especially from where he was sort of in the first half of the season where it was kind of, game to game he was it was kind of a roller coaster ride it seems like he's really settled in in into Stefanski's scheme and I think it makes sense I think sometimes we have a tendency to kind of want uh, maybe the tier that Baker's in to kind of grasp the offense immediately and just go with it and be this elite quarterback that you know you sort of associate with the number one pick and how he played his rookie year but you know it's a totally brand new scheme for him um, and not something he was used to running and I think you've kind of seen it coalesce as, it, as it's gotten to the second half of the season. So I just kind of want to get your overall thoughts on sort of where Baker is with this offense and kind of how Stefanski's scheme is kind of meshed with, with the quarterback that he is. Yeah. I think with uh, Baker in this offense, it's, I think it, it's the expectations have changed for him. It's, he's going to look more like golf or, or Jimmy Garoppolo in this type of offense, as opposed to Matt Ryan in 2016. Sure. Um, I think when you understand that expectations, but what I think Baker, you know, he, he's wild, man. Sometimes he tries to gun everything in there. 
Um, I think what the aspect that he does bring to that offense because is using his legs as a check down and, and being able, when he does all that movement stuff, being able to tug and run it and, and get the four or five yards or even the QB sweep from last week, you know, or in the playoff game. Um, actually in week 17 as well, he had a couple other scrambles like on a third down. And I think that's an element he can bring that's better than, uh, most of these other guys that are in the quote unquote Shanahan system. Um, I just think the, the the window of expectations has changed for him. I think he might not ever live up to that number one all pro hype, but he can still be in that realm of good and you can win a Super Bowl with. And because he just does enough that um, can help win you games. I think it's just, you know, he's just a unique skill set. I've, I've compared him to kind of Russell Wilson, uh, Russell Wilson without the speed, <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that's I've compared Baker. Like he has these weird limitations, like, you know, Quickim sometimes isn't the best because he's shorter and that's why he bails backwards. And sometimes he tries to gun things in there, but then he also can deliver a field comeback throw. And that's the stuff you can do. And he can actually move a throw pretty well on it with his leg or when he's moving. Um, I think that's just the expectations that you have to have for Baker. Like is that you can win with him, but he just might not be that number one God tier quarterback. But guess what? There's, there's only a couple guys that are God tier. And then it's not bad to have a guy that's above average and good and that you know, and sometimes knowing what you're going to get with the quarterback isn't a bad thing because you know what you can expect out of them. Yeah. And I think like the concept of using your legs and running as a check down is really fascinating because I don't know if people think about, I think about it in that sense where it's like, oh, Baker just kind of took off and he got this first. That's great. But really thinking about that as like an alternative to, yeah, like a simple check down or, you know, throwing it to the running back that's released after you've gone through your reads is really interesting. I know you and Robert have talked about on the podcast how yeah, there are limitations to a, to a Jared Goff and a Jimmy G and guys um, in similar systems that really just don't have that ability to run. And it really is such a, a huge thing that you've seen from, especially these last couple of weeks, like you mentioned, Baker picking up like crucial first downs uh, with his legs. So I think that concept of, of running as a check down is a really fascinating one. It's, it's, I think with more coaches that have been more, you know, as we've gotten further and further away when people realize, oh, not everyone's Joe Montana, not everyone's Steve Young, or not everyone's Brett Favre. We can run these precise West Coast offenses that were all kind of BS anyways about how precise they were. I Trust me, I watched a lot of 80s and 90s film this offseason because I was bored. Yeah, there was, a lot of, there was a lot more broken plays than people remember. Everyone, all those coaches have a real epitomized version of what that West Coast offense was. So I think more of these younger coaches realize that. So they teach these plays rather than going, oh, uh, you have to go from one to two to three to four to five. You have to go to one on the three-step, two on the five-step. They've gone, hey, one, and then you use your legs as a check down. And I think also with the NFL, they went, they're more comfortable being in man-to-man coverage than college college teams are. And when you're in man-to-man coverage, the defenders can have their backs turned, especially if they're bringing a pressure and using your legs can be the best play because if your guy, your number one doesn't win, you don't usually have enough time to get to number two, three and four. So, okay, go one, two, check down. I think the, I think just the progressions have changed. I think coaches have become more accepting of these more ad-libbed plays as opposed to being kind of, almost fascist with it going like, no, you have to do it this. And I think it's just an evolution of coaching and the understanding of football. Sometimes players just go make plays. For sure. Um, I wanted to end it with this because the, 
Browns, as we mentioned at the top, are uh, facing the Kansas City Chiefs, who uh, won the Super Bowl last season, have one of the most prolific offenses I think I've ever seen. I think maybe the NFL has ever seen. Um, you know, there was this weird thing with them this year where it almost felt like to me, and I don't know if you'll agree with this or not, but they had a little bit of a um, the regular season is a little boring and we're kind of ready for the playoffs. There were some, there were some games where, you know, the narrative is like, Oh, are the chiefs, the chiefs are looking a little, um, lackadaisical. Like is, are they the same chiefs of last season? And I don't really tend to buy into that. I, I very much buy into the, like, they know how good they are and they're, um, kind of saving that, that full steam ahead for the playoffs. So my question to you is how, you know, the Browns are limited defensively, even, you know, they're getting Denzel Ward back and they're getting Kevin Johnson back, but, um, you know, they, Olivier Vernon, who was having a phenomenal season opposite Miles Garrett is out for the year. So really like pressure wise, they're relying a ton on Miles Garrett, uh, in that front four now. Um, their, their secondary is still limited. Their safeties are not great. Like there's just only so many things they can do defensively, even with some of these guys back. So, how in the world do you, I mean, in general, how do you slow down the Chiefs in any way? And how maybe do you think, like, what are the Browns going to have to do defensively to to get a couple of punts from the Chiefs to really, I think, to stay in this game and be able to really have a shot at all in this divisional round? I think when they say the pregame prayer, they're just hoping God can listen <laughs> to the Chiefs version. Um, but I, I, think, I think some of it, there's no real – it's I hate talking in this way, but it's it, there is real no good good answer other than generating a four man rush. Sure. Um, and guess what? Browns have Miles Garrett, so that helps. Um, but it it's you have to generate the four man rush because Mahomes is he's a freak in the sense of the spatial awareness and everything, but his football IQ is off the charts, and he recognizes blitzes. And a lot of those like Madden drops that we see where he's bailing backwards or running back and forth, it's because he knows it's a blitz. And so he's just generating something, ad-libbing something. And and you'll see him fade away in the back of the pocket because he's working away from the pressure. I think what what the Chiefs are going to try and do is what they try to do. They try to run you out of the gym. They try to score a bunch of points, obviously. But then on defense, they try to generate turnovers and, and just, you know, go full court press and go on a run. I think with the Chiefs, you have to make them – make them play quarterback you have to take your licks and let these seven and six yard gains happen in either the run game or in the passing game and just stay in cover two the browns were running cover two last week on first and second down i think they have to kind of live that way it, it's not going to be fun <laughs> you know but it's that's what you have to do and you just hope that they score 27 as opposed to 37 or 40 and you get the one turnover, the one special teams play, and you force maybe two or three punts as opposed to zero punts. You just have to hope that there's a one or two drives that Mahomes against cover two gets frustrated, takes a couple shots, and then they get batted down, and Browns got the field quickly, and then they run a nice long offensive drive in the run game. That's that's the game plan. I, I think I think it's just suicide to try and blitz them. I really do, and I, I I'm all about aggression, offense and defense. I'm not one that likes to sit back and do stuff. Just by philosophy, if ever some of my dad's Minnesota Vikings teams, it was all touchdown to check down and create turnovers on defense. That's what I've been growing up in, and it's what I believe in. And I think it's just you have to realize you have to have a self scout self-evaluation of yourself. And I think the Browns is let's sit back and just hope Mahomes misses a couple throws. I mean, that's what you have to hope for. And you can do it. It's football. It's any given Sunday, any given Saturday. Like that's, that's what football is. It's the playoffs. 
but I think that's the, that's the path they have to go on. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. I also, you know, this is a bit of like wishing and luck, but, you know, Clyde Edwards-Alaire, who's been out for a while with an injury, you know, he's been practicing this week. And I almost, it's it's like, okay, if you just totally ignore the run game, like maybe they'll be like, oh, we've got we've got Clyde back. Let's, like, let's get him a couple touches. Let's get him going. And like, maybe you just let them do that and hopefully and hope that they sort of are just like, well, we've got our, you know, first round pick back let's just let's get him some runs and maybe go out of the offense a little bit with what we like to do but I think you're right I think it's just the Browns have just got to try to do whatever they can in in that cover two and 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 light boxes and just kind of like yeah hope he misses some throws and and I, I I think I I would love just for it to be competitive and close and I think the Browns offense has gotten to a point now where it's like I feel confident that they are going to be able to score points and they're going to be able to have drives and um, you just hope that, yeah, I think the point about forcing one or two punts instead of zero punts because of how good this Chiefs offense is, is really, uh, the only hope. But, um, yeah, man, it's going to be, it's going to be a fun game. Do you have a, outside of that game, do you have a favorite matchup that's, uh, that's happening in the divisional round and, and which one will it be? Oh, Rams defense versus Packers offense. That's circled. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> I am very curious to see how that game breaks. I, I, I just want to see the tweaks because the Rams, you know what they're going to try and do. And the Seahawks ran a lot of beaters that were supposed to beat those match coverages. And I'm, and the Rams just locked that stuff down. So I'm curious what the Packers have up their sleeve and, and Matt LaFleur. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited for that game. And that's the one I'm, uh, I, I have a keen interest on. It's, it's a great slate of games. That's, that's what's fun about the playoffs. Yeah, it is. And I think outside of just my own personal, like, Browns rooting reasons for, for Browns Chiefs, I think that's, that's the one I'm most kind of excited about as well. Um, Nate, well, thank you so much, man, for joining. Appreciate all the insight. Um, if you guys haven't checked out the athletic football show, please do. Um, I know you guys are kind of do multiple episodes a week and you guys cover so much and it's great. Um, so, so check that out. Um, you can follow Nate. Nate, are you at Nate underscore Tice on Twitter? Is that correct? I am at Nate underscore Tice, yes. <laughs> All right. Great. So follow Nate on Twitter. Um, he does a lot of great clip breakdowns and um, just uh, just a smart football guy that everybody should be following. So, Nate, thank you so much, man. really appreciate the time. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me.